right, so uh, according to Wikipedia, so if I catch your attention with that one, so that's one of the school of great scholarly theologians, Wikipedia, but it happened on one of my searches, it popped up a, a link and I clicked on it and it happened to be Wikipedia, but it was kind of interesting. It basically uh, broke, says there is a widespread scholarly view that the Gospel of John can be broken down into four parts. A prologue, which is the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Um, the book of signs, which happens from verse 19 of chapter 1, all the way through ch the end of chapter 12. So we're in chapter 12 today, so we're at the end of the book of signs, according to this breakout. Then going forward, there's the book of glory or exaltation, chapters 13 through 20, and then an epilogue in chapter 21. So just an interesting way to break it out, but I thought, okay, we're at the end of the book of signs. And why is that so? Because uh, John, the Gospel of John, the writer, wrote seven signs uh, for us to see. And so all the signs have been you know, unveiled so far in the first 11 chapters, but real quickly, it was the changing water into wine at Cana, the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum, healing the paralytic at Bethsaida, feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, healing the man uh, blind from birth, and then last week as Tim taught, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John uh, 11. And one amazing fact, uh, nugget for me at least, when Tim was teaching was talking about, you know, cause a lot of people get perplexed of why did he wait four days, you know, to come and do it, and he was talking about kind of the Hebrew thought that, you know, this, their spirit would float above them for three days and maybe God would restore them and uh, that Jesus waited for that time to pass so that there would be no doubt that only God uh, could raise Lazarus. And so that to me was, was uh, you know, very cool learning uh, for myself. But it's amazing that, you know, God's just trying to get this, uh, uh, this point across that Jesus is who he is, the Messiah. He's the son of God. And so we know in uh, John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, it tells us, therefore, many other signs also Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So these seven signs aren't the only signs that uh, Jesus did, obviously. He did a lot more, uh, but they're not written down here. John wrote these specific seven for two purposes. He wrote them down so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and secondly, that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's John's whole point of this gospel. And so we just came off an amazing chapter 11. So uh, as Tim was teaching us, he used the seven I am statements. And I believe we hit on the fifth of the seventh I am statements when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, we learned that short but impactful verse that Jesus wept. You know, he had such a heart of love for Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Uh, obviously, he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was an amazing uh, story that we, that we went over last week. And that it showed that Jesus has power over death. It's the last enemy, and he's conquered it. He's showing what he's going to do. And then at the very end, there was the plot to kill Jesus, right? So these uh, leaders were not going to be <laughs> dismayed, even though in the midst of these miraculous signs that's kind of showing he's the Son of God. It was just upsetting their world and their hearts were hardened. So Caiaphas, the high priest, um, as we learned, uh, he's not a believer, but God uses unbelievers at times to get his point across. And so Caiaphas himself, an unbeliever, prophesied that it would be expedient for one man should die for all. 
And we know that all comes to mean Jew and Gentile-like. It's the world, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so they were looking at it, though, from the nation. They didn't want their system and their nation to perish. Uh, but God was using it to prophesy that what Jesus was going to do. So that brings us up to John chapter 12. And here we go. Uh, the anointing at Bethany. So verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And so, uh, when I first read this verse, I have no idea why. Uh, you can take it up with the Lord if you don't really like where I'm going to take you on this. But I got stuck on six days before the Passover for some reason. That's the thought that was like, hmm. I said, I wonder what they were doing six days before the original, the actual Passover event. You know, what was happening six days before that event? Again, I don't really know why, and I thought, Lord, what are you doing? I'm starting to research, okay, what was going on at that time? Obviously, the plagues were going on at that time, and so I, I found, uh, you know, someone who actually studied, you know, how long the plagues in Egypt actually last, and so he, you know, did a lot of work to, you know, working through First Kings and Solomon. I won't bore you with all the details of how he got there. But he determined that basically the Passover happened on 5.59 a.m. on a Saturday, May t or March 23rd, 1446 B.C. Now, the year's not necessarily that important. I was just trying to figure out what were they doing six years before the Passover. And so if you back up from there, they know that the angel of death came, was the 10th plague. That took a day to happen. The plague before that was darkness, and the, the Bible doesn't say what every, how long every plague lasted, but the plague of darkness lasted for three days. So we know that takes us to Tuesday, March 19th. And then the plague before that was the plague of locusts. And so the locust plague, they don't really know exactly how long it is, but they know the Bible does say it takes a day for the locusts to be blown in and a day for them to be blown out. This gentleman surmises, yeah, maybe it was a week in total, but, you know, I guess it depends on how fast locusts eat of how quickly they got done, but let's say it's three days, five days in there. Basically, six days before the original Passover, you're going to be in the middle of the plague of locusts. And I know you're all very excited about finding out what does this have to do with John chapter 12, as I was, because I'm like, really, Lord? Like, I don't really want to go down a rabbit trail. I don't have time to go down a rabbit trail, but help me understand so the pl eighth plague of locusts we find in Exodus chapter 10. So if you want to turn, turn to Exodus chapter 10, and you'll see, I, if nobody else thinks it's cool, I thought it was cool what the Lord has done here. So you be the judge once you read through this uh, with us. Exodus chapter 10, the eighth plague, locusts. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. So there's parallel number one. <laughs> the servants at the time where Jesus was were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all their hearts were hardened, right? They were blind. They wanted to kill him. And says, That I may show these, what? Signs of mine before him. Okay, God, there's two. You're, you're getting my attention. And that you may tell the hearing of... Tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my what signs which I have done among them. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. 
Same thing that he's doing in John chapter 12, showing that Jesus is the Son of God. Here he is six, six days before the original Passover. I'm doing these signs to show you that I am God. I am the Lord. And uh, so I was like, wow, that's amazing, but it shouldn't surprise us. It's the same God as yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? And this just goes to show it. He's doing the same thing the same way. And so it continues on. Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord of God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. And I, I kind of wrote glorify me, right? Because that's what we're talking about today. And so they were, their hearts were hardened. They, they were not humbling themselves, just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees weren't humbling themselves before God. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'm going to bring locusts into your territory. won't go through all the details. They're just going to bring locusts in. They're going to destroy what the other plagues didn't destroy yet, and they're going to take it all. So if you go on to verse 7, it says, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? And again, I just look at John chapter 12. Jesus is just such a snare uh, to these guys. They're trying to kill him. They want to get rid of him because he's doing all these signs in front of them and they can't, they just want to, he's upsetting their system. And so here we are in the Old Testament, it's the same thing. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord. It says, uh, do not, uh, do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? And so their guys were like, Pharaoh, just look out the window. The whole thing's gone, right? I mean, what are you doing? Why are you so hard-hearted here? And so uh, they, you know, this scene un unveils and, you know, they're saying, who's going? And Moses is like, we're taking everybody, man, and we're going to go have a feast with the Lord. And they're like, no, only the men can go because we're keeping the women and children. And so God says, let them have it. You know, here come the locusts. So the locusts come in and they do all that. And so the locusts come in, destroy it. And then um, you get down to verse 16 and it says, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. And said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Which, you know, we really know that he's not, he doesn't have an, an honest, uh, really, plea here, right? But it's kind of a parallel to what we're going to read about Judas, what he's going to do in John 12. And it says, Thou therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. I just kind of thought that was funny. <laughs> just this one time. Meanwhile, we're on the eighth plague. You know, <laughs> just forgive me this, this, one, this one more time. And it says, and entreat the Lord your God. And entreat means to supplicate or pray. He's like, just pray to your God. I'm not going to pray to your God, but you do it. And he takes away from me this death only. <laughs> and again, I just thought I can't help but parallel this back to what God's doing in John chapter 12 <laughs> about he just raised Lazarus from the death. Take this death, take this death away from me only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entered uh, and entreated the Lord. He prayed. The Lord removed the locusts and uh restored it, but then in, in verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. So really, we see this parallel in the 10 plagues that, you know, it's showing God is revealing himself in these signs and wonders of who, hey, I'm God, I'm God, you know, I'm, I am the God, I am the one true God, and that um, he, he's showing his glory through this, the same thing that's going on in John chapter 12, but we have leaders that have hardened hearts. So we see the same, the parallel. And so I just said, thank you, God, for taking me on that journey. I thought that was just a pretty, pretty cool connection that I would have never gone there myself. But anyhow, 
So that's one verse. All right, we're going okay. Verse 2. So there they made him a supper. And so I stopped there too, and I just thought how ironic that the locusts just came in and ate all the food in Egypt, and Jesus and them are going to sit down and have a feast. They got plenty of food. You know, I just thought that was a neat contrast versus the story in Exodus. And the next statement says, and Martha served. And if you remember last week, Martha served then too, but it wasn't so good, right? Martha was complaining. She was bitter. She's, nobody's helping me. What are you doing? Mary, get off the ground. And her heart wasn't right. But here it just says Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So Martha now, different continents. She's totally countenance. She's just different. She's not complaining. She's joyfully serving. She's serving them dinner. She's just like, man, this is awesome. My brother's here again. Look, he's eating with Jesus. And so she's just a joyful giver of service this time. And let us serve like Martha. Uh, the parallel account to this is Mark 14, 3. And the only reason I bring this up, Bob Davis talked about this. It was kind of funny. And, and that's uh, in Mark 14, 3, it says, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So we know it's Simon the leper. And Bob Davis was saying, you know, this is kind of interesting because he had been healed of his leprosy, but he still called Simon the leper. And so kind of humorously, Bob said, that's kind of like Bob the liar is sitting at the table with Simon the leper and Andy the cheater. And here's the Lazarus, the dead guy, Lazarus, all sitting here eating. And it's just funny that the names don't go away. And I think in a way that's actually kind of cool because it's a reminder of what God has resurrected us from, right? What did God heal us from and bring us back from? And so it's good to remember that, right? I used to be that way. And so here you are, all these people sitting at this table. Verse 3 says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Sorry, back in John 12, yeah. And so, I don't, again, very costly oil of spikenard. That's not a common phrase that I'm injecting into a lot of sentences that I use. So I'm like, what the heck is the very costly oil of spikenard? So when I've got questions, I go to Got Questions. GotQuestions.org has a great answer on this question. And this is a little lengthy, but stick with me because the end of this is, is pretty amazing. So what is spikenard in the Bible? Spikenard was an expensive perfume mentioned in the Song of Solomon in chapter 1 and chapter 4. And it's in these gospel accounts of the women anointing uh, Jesus. Spikenard had a strong, distinctive aroma similar to an essential oil. And I know there's some essential oil fans out there in the, in the crowd. But it's similar to that in that it clings to the skin and to the hair and continues to give off a heady perfume. It's also thought to have medicinal purposes. It's, it is the root of an Indian plant. I'm going to do my best to say this. The Nardostaceous yetamansi of the family of Valerians, growing in the Himalaya mountains. So it's only found in the Himalaya mountains. You can look that up later for spelling, because I'm sure I didn't say that right. But it is distinguished by having, it has one main root that comes out, and the root has very hairy spikes. And the ointment prepared from this root was highly, highly valued. Spikenard symbolized the very best in the ancient cultures, the way that the Tiffany diamond or the gold standard does for us today. <clears throat> and so, um, so in the, uh, where am I at here? Okay. Um, so spikenard had a unique fragrance, and the presence of its aroma was an indication that the very best 
had been offered to the Song of Solomon. Spikenard is mentioned in reference to the love of the bride and groom. In Song of Solomon 1.12, the bride says, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. These words, those words implied that despite all other fragrances in the room, only his brides would matter, matter to the groom. The presence of Spikenard represented their passion for each other and their desire to have only the best define their love. So when Mary of Bethany broke her alabaster jar, so I had to stop there, what's an alabaster jar? Alabaster's like marble, it's a very fancy substance that basically was used for perfume vials or containers, and it was very good at basically keeping everything in, so you wanted all that scent and aroma to be not out until you wanted it to be out. And this material was expensive, but it was also perfect for that use. And so before we talked about a pound of spikenard, so what's a pound? So a gallon of water is eight pounds, pint of water is one pound, kind of like in my cup, but ointment is heavier, so it's probably only about eight ounces or so. It's like maybe toothpaste, you know, container. So very small amounts of material would be in this alabaster kind of marble jar. And this is what Mary of Bethany is breaking this alabaster jar over Jesus. And so when Mary of Bethany broke this alabaster jar of spikenard and bathed the feet of Jesus with oil, she too only wanted the best to define her love for him. It has been speculated that this jar may have been Mary's dowry or her inheritance. And, you know, the cost of this was for, you know, they basically said this was an average year's wages. So if you think of the average year's wage today, whatever that is, 50 grand or whatever, that's what this little eight ounce tube of spikenard cost. In other words, this jar of spikenard ointment may have been all she had of value and she poured it out on him. Her extravagant gift is a picture of the kind of offering expected of us. Only the best was worthy of her Lord and she was willing to give everything as an act of worship. The same should be true of us. And so I'm gonna to try to get through this. I know I don't have Jan here to cry with me, so I'm gonna to try to make it through these, these statements, but this is very powerful. It says, when Judas rebuked Mary for wasting such a precious ointment, and I know we didn't get to that story yet, but he, he was rebuking Mary for wasting this because he wanted to give it to the poor. Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Only Jesus truly understood what uh, he was saying. He knew that in a few days he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. And this is what's so powerful. It may have well been that he felt, when he felt the whip lacerate his flesh and he felt the nails pierce his hands and feet, he could also inhale the fragrance of that gift of spikenard and remember why he was doing this. That's powerful. And so Mary's gift... Um, this gift of spikenard may have strengthened and encouraged him. Mm. Even throughout his horrific ordeal, as its strong scent clung to his skin, Mary had not known it at the time, but she offered her valuable gift. But she was the first, she would be the first to anoint the Son of God as he became no longer simply their teacher, but the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. Man, that's powerful. We should worship like, like Mary. So verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, 
said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And we know that 300 denarii, that's the average year's wage at that time. But this is the first recorded words of Judas in the Bible. And his, his first word is why. And you know, a lot of commentators went on for that for a long time, that that's not a good word to be saying. In other words, really, though, he was saying, like, why did you do this? And meanwhile, she's worshiping Jesus and pouring this out on Jesus. So whatever else Judas thinks should be done with this is really, he's saying, is more important than Jesus. And so obviously his heart's not in the right place. He put more importance on others. And even though we're going to find out uh, his heart's not really for the poor, but even if it was, right, it's not more important than Jesus, right? And so contrast this to what Mary was doing and giving everything that she had for the Messiah, the resurrection and the life. And verse 6 says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was in it. So he was stealing that's really why he was upset about this. He wanted that money, not that he cared for the poor. Verse 7, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. And I just uh, have with you always, but me you do not always have. Now, I just want to, I, I don't think that was a knock on poor people or to say, hey, you know, don't care about the poor. He's saying, he knows Judas is lying, right? It has nothing to do with poor people. And he's just telling him, dude. You're always going to have poor people with you. And he knows it's really Judas wants the money for himself. You're always going to have yourself with you. But me, I'm only here for a short while longer. You don't have me much longer. Notice that she didn't get this for Lazarus. So it was used in burial uh, you know, situations a lot. But Lazarus had died, so she didn't use it on Lazarus. So obviously it wasn't something that was to be used for that. Rather, she wanted the very best to define her love for Jesus. And again, we want to worship like Mary. Verse 9 says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. It's, it's just ironic, isn't it? I mean, so he just raised Lazarus from the dead, and we went over the four-day thing, right? So he made it no doubt like it's God doing this, and what do they want to do? They wanted to kill him again. So I just, it's kind of ironic. I mean, what, like Jesus isn't going to be able to raise him from the dead, you know, dead again. And so if I was Lazarus, I'd be nervous. Like, wait a minute, what's going to happen? They're going to keep knocking me off and Jesus is going to keep bringing me back or what? But so, you know, they're, they're somehow they think they're going to have an impact or they're going to have more power than the Lord, you know? And so it's funny that way um, that, uh, you know, just sad funny that they think they have that much control. But they wanted to do this. They wanted to put Lazarus to death also because of verse 11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So there were a lot of people that, I mean, Lazarus was there. They're seeing him and they're like, wow, this guy came back from the dead and they're starting to believe. Now, when I was traveling uh, this week, I was in uh, Cleveland, Ohio on Wednesday. And so I was getting the crust out of my eyes one morning and David Jeremiah was on TV. And David Jeremiah was preaching on Romans 8. In Romans 8, his message was, God loves you. And it was a really good teaching. Obviously, it's Romans 8. <laughs> it's hard to be a bad teaching on Romans 8. But he did something neat with, uh, with his congregation. I'm going to try to do that with you here, because I think these questions really highlight what's going on with Lazarus. So if you want to turn with me to chapter uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 31 in particular.
All right, so it's going to require some participation on your part, so we're going to get the, the blood flowing a little bit. And uh, as David Jeremiah was saying this, he goes, you know, I want, he wants you to respond. I want you to respond to these questions. These are rhetorical questions that Paul's asking to build us up in the truth to understand what's being said. So in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And your answer is no one. All right. But man, say it. He said, say it like you just didn't wake up. Say it like you mean it, right? That's what he was saying. I'll say the same, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I added this one from verse 38. Who can put us to death and separate us from Christ? No one, right? So this is what we know. We, we know that we know that we know. So here he is sitting with Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus is sitting there next to Jesus. And who can put us to death <laughs> and separate us from Christ? No one. He's sitting right here. He was dead. Now he's not. And so he's really driving home this point and how blind they are to these signs. You know, it's just sad. Jesus had raised someone from the dead. They should be ecstatic, but instead they want to kill not just Lazarus, but Jesus also. And if you look back to Exodus 10, the same thing was happening. Pharaoh's heart, hardened heart. And here we have the hardened heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But this must happen, right? So verse 12, the next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of Israel. And so we sang about that here today. And so we know that uh, this verse comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. And Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. So the, the Jews knew this. This, was, this psalm spoke about the coming Messiah. They were using these words to say, acknowledge he's the Messiah. He's, he's the one. He's the King of Israel. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So the people are proclaiming him the king of Israel, hoping he would wipe out the Romans and establish peace. Jerusalem actually means the city of peace. But while he is riding in triumphantly here, uh, in the parallel passage, we see that he is crying over Jerusalem. Jesus has tears over what's going to become of his city, Jerusalem. And that's in Luke 19, uh, verses 37 to 44. Won't go through all that, but as he's coming in, he's descending off the Mount of Olives, he wept, he weeps over Jerusalem and just says, man, uh, you know, if, he says this here, verse 41, now as he draw near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in every side and level you and you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you in, in you one stone upon another. So he saw what was coming to Jerusalem and he was, he was sad about that. They were blind to it. It saddens Jesus. But I have to say, I have to stop and look, where are we at today? You know, is this what's going on today? Are we blind to it? And does it sadden Jesus today what's going on in many ways? Uh, in many ways, yes. And so when hearts won't turn and believe on him, Jesus is saddened by that. And so uh, we don't want to be a people like that, uh, obviously. So verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, <clears throat> fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Um, and it's an obvious fulfillment. It's basically saying this is what the Messiah is going to do, and Jesus is doing it. And interestingly enough, in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, even though this was an obvious fulfillment. But when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So kind of like Caiaphas, even though his disciples were believers, you know, Caiaphas didn't know he was in the story. <laughs> he didn't know he was in the play and that God was using him to prophesy. The disciples are here doing all this, getting the donkey, getting the colt, but it's not occurring to them that, hey, this is the prophecy that this is what the Messiah is going to do until, you know, he is glorified and the Holy Spirit comes back to them. And so why is that? Why would that be the case? And I, I would just think that, it, you know, it's just to show, again, John's trying to show that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God. So he didn't want to make it seem like the disciples were walking around with the 500 prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. And, oh, what do we have to do next? What do we have to stage next? You know, so they didn't know about it. But yet, so John wanted to bring that point home, I think, just to show, again, without, you know, so that you know that you know that you know that this is Jesus, the Son of God. All right, verse uh, 17 uh, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. So all these people that saw Lazarus come back, I mean, they bore witness. They're like, yeah, we saw the guy. He was dead and now he's, he's living. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard he had done this sign. And so, man, here they come. The people are believing. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And so here it is kind of, uh, you know, at this point, um, similar to the Pharaoh, like, is this guy going to continue to be a snare for us? And so here the whole world has gone after him. And of course they had John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, the world is going to come to him. So in verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Verse 21, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And some commentators said they were actually there to interview him. They wanted to find out if all these things were true. And uh, they heard about all these signs, and these guys wanted to interview him and find out. So verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And so he's saying, Man, I'm... I'm not available for any more interviews. I'm here to do and accomplish what God, my Father has sent me to do and that I'm going to be glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Warren Wearsby says this about, about this passage, and I thought it was pretty powerful. He said, Jesus used the image of the seed to illustrate the great spiritual truth that there can be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. Of itself, a seed is weak and useless, but when it is planted, it dies, and it becomes fruitful. There is both beauty and bounty when a seed dies and fulfills its purpose. If a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put in the cold, dark earth. 
but the only way it can achieve its goal is by being planted. God's children are like seeds. They are small and insignificant, but they have life in them, God's life. However, that life can never be fulfilled unless we yield ourselves to God and permit him to plant us. We must die to self so that we may live in these words, Wiersbe says. Jesus challenges us today to surrender our lives to him. Note the contrast, loneliness or fruit, fruitfulness, losing your life or keeping your life, serving self or serving Christ, pleasing self or receiving God's honor. Wiersbe goes on to talk about, he read about some Christians who visited a remote mission station, we talked about some missionaries today, to see how the ministry was going. As they watched the dedicated missionary team work, they were impressed with their ministry, but admittedly, they missed civilization. You certainly are buried, uh, buried yourself out here, one of the visitors exclaimed. We haven't buried ourselves, the missionary replied. We were planted. <laughs> so if we are like seeds... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm looking, I have a mirror here, okay? So I talk into the mirror a lot. So this is for me as much as anybody. So if we are like seeds, are we complaining about being put in the cold, dark earth? Um, are we struggling with about being planted? If I'm honest with myself, I'm probably, there's probably more resisting going on, going, getting into the ground than there needs to be. Where has God planted you? Um, are we being fruitful? Are we serving? Are we worshiping? Are we witnessing like Martha, like Mary, like Lazarus? Are we pleasing him or are we pleasing ourselves? Jesus still calls and challenges us today, his children, because he loves us and he wants the best for us, which is him. He wants us to have him. We will touch on more of this when we get uh, a little bit later on, though, but a powerful example of the seed. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father... Uh, glorify your name. And so Chuck Smith says that on, the, on verse 28, just that simple statement. He said, oh, this is just as powerful as the prayer in the garden when he said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. How glorious is it when we submit our ways to God? God, save me from this hour, but yet not so, Lord. You, you just glorify your name. And so it really changes the way we pray, doesn't it? It kind of messes with you. I mean, sure, we still want to pray for people and we need to pray for people and we need to pray for people to be healed. But, you know, help me with this thing or the other thing or this or that. But only if it brings you glory, God. It's a, it's a definite, uh, it really changes the exclamation on your prayer because I know what I want. I want to be better or I want somebody else to be better. But I don't know if that's what the Lord wants for me or for that person. Do I want my sister's hip replacement surgeries to heal well? Sure. Heck yeah, I pray for that uh, every day. I said, but if he has a different, uh, different season for her to go through, who am I to argue? You know, it's as the Lord wills. And Oswald Chambers had this to say on a, uh, a while back on a devotional, which was, which was great, really transformed the way I think about my prayers. And, and, uh, and it says, you know, when we pray and God doesn't answer it, you know, our normal response is like, oh my gosh, you know, when's he going to answer my prayer? Or we get stressed out, or if we're in stress when we're praying, you know, the stress continues and we're in anxiety. But he says, that's not the right mindset. Instead, the right response is to get delighted. Ooh, ooh, God didn't give this to me what I thought I needed. That means I'm getting something better. God's going to give me something better. No, no, it's not going to be better. It's going to be the best because it's going to be what God 
wants for us. And so we don't actually get depressed. We get, oh, excited. Like, it's like Christmas. I can't wait to see what the Lord's going to do for me. And wow, that's a, dratically, a drastically different way of approaching it than the way I know I often approached it. And so here we are, and um, continuing on with verse 28, it says, Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so we heard from Matthew uh, 3, in Matthew 3, 17 and 17, 5, we've heard other examples of God's voices calling out to Jesus and, and this dialogue going on in front of other people. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so this is an example uh, here. So Jesus is talking with the father and the, the father is responding to his son, which is a perfect example of the relationship with the father. He's always given us that perfect uh, example. So why twice glorified? Why does it say I have both glorified it and will glorify it again? And so God the Father is, is glor both glorified in what Jesus Christ had already had done up to this point in time through his life and his ministry up to this point, and he's going to glorify it again when he goes through his suffering and his death and his resurrection. So God's will is that none should perish, and Jesus is just being obedient to see it through, to make a way that none should perish. He's just He's just executing the plan that he came to execute. And we know this is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. We just have to point them to the way, to this way. Just as Lazarus just sat and said nothing, but was such a sign of life resurrected, we too should just be able to sit and have our lines shine <laughs> a life resurrected. Is that what we're doing with our life? I kind of said like the bat signal. <laughs> it's kind of like the a cross going up into the sky, man. Every believer that has a life resurrected, man, we should light that, that sky up, you know. And uh, that is our life that? Is it a life uh, resurrected? Um, so, um, therefore, the, verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And so really what Jesus is showing is uh, he's like, he's talking to the Father. <laughs> he's in, it's in front of people. People are seeing him doing it, but it's not for him. He's saying, it's not for me. This is for you guys. Like, hey, look at what I'm doing. I'm talking to my Father. My Father is talking to me. I'm responding to what my Father's telling me to do, and I'm doing it. But hey, I'm only going to be here for a little while longer. And he's like, hey, wake up. You know, they're always falling asleep at the garden and whatever else. Like, pay attention to me. I'm doing this because, but then I'm not going to be here. So you're going to have to be here because <laughs> I'm going to be up there next to my father. And so you have to be paying attention because I still want to be in relationship with you. I am going to go be with my father. I need you to be over here doing what I'm doing right now. He's like, hey, come on, pay attention and see this. This is for your sake so that you continue on in relationship with the father after I'm gone. And so I think that's such a beautiful picture of how he wants to be in relationship with you. People say, gee, relationship isn't mentioned in the Bible, which certainly is, right? I mean, how can you not say that? He wants to be in relationship with his children here. And we know we're feeble people. We'll mess it up. We'll forget to do it or whatever. And so not here, but we know later he's going to send his helper. So it's not enough that he gives us a perfect example. He's like, I know you're still going to probably screw it up, so I'm going to send somebody to help you. So later on, he's going to send his spirit to be that helper for us, to be able to be in relationship with him. So how beautiful a picture of that is God's love for us. So now, verse 31, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
So the tide is about to turn. You know, the adversary in the garden tempted Adam and Eve into sin, which just brought death and destruction, the travesty that it is, into the world. But now Jesus is about to conquer both sin and death, and so taking it back. And I know Tim was here, he'd go like, pow, right? You know, the, 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 my Batman theme, like kapow, you know, here it comes. Jesus is taking it back. He said, this is it, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be victorious. Verse 32, he says, and if I, I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So this is not the first time that he told him this. He told him in John 3, John 8, told him the exact same thing, that I'm going to be lifted up. He was telling people what was going to happen. In Romans 5, 18, um, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, the, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Right? So why did John write this? So that all would believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that all would have life uh, through him. So verse 33 continues on. It says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that this Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So they still don't know. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was, departed and was hidden from them. So he's trying to answer their question. They're like, who is this? Who is the son of man? So he's trying to answer them like, I'm this guy. I'm the son of man. I'm the light. I'm with you. So walk with me while you have me, lest darkness overtakes you. Because you know, I'm not going to be here for long. I am, I am going away. So he's both answering their question of who he is. But then he's saying, something's coming. I'm signaling that I'm not always going to be here. Something is going on. So walk in the light while you have the light. And we'll get into more about the light um, in, a, in a few verses. Verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they still, well, I didn't say still, it says they did not believe in him. I say they still did not believe in him. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, he who says... He is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Really hard for them to believe. Verse 38 says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes. So similar to the Exodus 10 story, you know, just time after time, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and hardened and hardened again. He just wouldn't come uh, to believe. You know, verse 41 says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, and so what I'm reminded of is kind of like Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah was called to go to the Ninevites, and he's like, I don't want to go to the Ninevites. I don't want you to save those people, so I'm going over this way, right? And God's like, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. You know, 
go over here. But he like didn't want to see them saved, and that's kind of what's happening here. Is uh, you know because if they would have been saved, uh, God's plan couldn't couldn't unfold. They wouldn't take Jesus to the cross, and God's redemptive plan could not take place, and the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled. And we know that God keeps His promises. He's not going to die. He must redeem, as we will see later. Verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so I, I just think of Nicodemus. I know we usually have plugs for the chosen in here. And, uh, you know, but when that scene, you know, Nicodemus is there and Jesus is really you know, he's just loving on him, and Nicodemus is like, wow, this, this is like God. I mean, this is him. I mean, how, nobody else could do this except God, and it's such a powerful scene. And his wife says in a different scene, she says, I love our life, <laughs> right? He says, I love our life, and he goes, I do too, but you can hear in his voice like, I do too, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't know if I can go on with this, but he's stuck in this system. He's the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And so these leaders were coming to Jesus. They were coming to believe in him, but they were struggling because they knew if they admitted it, you know, they're going to be kicked out. So these folks had a real hard time choosing who they were going to serve, God or, or man. In verse 44, then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. And so, and he says, I have come as a light into the world. Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And so uh, one of the things that we, you know, during VBS, um, the, the teachings that we use, the Answers in Genesis curriculum, you know, is awesome, right? So it takes you through the beginning of, of Genesis and the creation account. And to me, it's very um, enlightening. I learned a lot even just going through and, and teaching some of it. But one of the things that I learned, and maybe it's just I forgot it or I just didn't pay attention to the order, is what's said in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1. So if we go to Genesis chapter 1 real quick, this is just important to point out, I think. <clears throat> so Genesis chapter 1, we'll go to just verse 3. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So you get on to verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be signs and seasons. And then verse 16 says, then God made two great lights, one to rule the greater one to rule the day and a lesser one to rule the night. And he made all the stars also. So on day one, he said, let there be light. But he didn't create the sun and the moon and the stars till day four. So where'd the light come from? We know God is light. God is light. And Jesus just said, I have come as a light into the world. Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And so if you compare that, that's the verse 46 versus Genesis 1-3. Verse 46 says, whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And Genesis 1-3 says, God divided the light from the darkness. And so even from the very beginning of creation, God calls out his son, and his sons, I came as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. It's amazing. It's just same as yesterday as it is to today and as to tomorrow. The, the truth is woven all the way through. 
And in verse, and when we take it a step further, what's coming, what's out there in the future is Revelation 22, verse 5. And I'll just read it. At verse, Revelation 22 says, there shall, be, there shall be no night there. They, know, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So God is our light. God is the light. Jesus said, I have come in as a light into the world, and whoever abides in me won't walk in darkness. So verse 47 says, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And I think Tim touched on this last week, or it might have been a couple weeks ago, about the woman caught in adultery, and you know they brought, him, brought her to him, and he was writing in the sand, and hey, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone, and and yeah, they all leave, and he says, you know, woman, who's here to condemn you? And um, she looks up and says, no one, my Lord. And he said, neither will I condemn you. And when you look at that versus John 3.17, John 3.17 says, uh, my, sent my son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus wasn't here to condemn the world. He was here to save the world. And so... Um, so verse 48 says, he who rejects me though, and he who does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We know in the beginning of John, it was in the beginning was the word and the word was God. So the word is going to judge in the last day. God will judge. So wrapping up verse 49, for I have uh, not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Verse 50, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And so why is his command everlasting life? That was his command, it says. And because his creation was perfect. In the Genesis account, we know it was heaven on earth in the garden. There was no sin, living with God eternally in the presence of God, all was good. But then sent, Satan tempted and deceived and brought sin and death and destruction into the world, throwing off God's plan. But God wants it back. He wants us back. He wants it back so badly that he sent his son Jesus to die in order to get it back, right? And so he wants heaven on earth again. He's going to establish heaven on earth again. I always think of the sign going into Sandy Cove. It says, Jesus never fails, that big sign. I, mean, I love that all the time. And Jesus isn't going to fail. God will not be denied to see his plan through. So Jesus cannot say, say his own words except that which the Father has told him, for he and the Father of one are one. God does not want to be denied access to your heart or to my heart either. Just as Jesus died to save us from our sins and rose again, showing power over sin and death by raising Lazarus, he proved he has that power. And since he did that too and for Lazarus, even though he did that to glorify the Father and the, the Father to glorify himself, right? That's why he raised it, raised Lazarus. But even so, he got to raise his friend that he loved from death. So he did it to glorify God, but yet his son is raised from, his friend is raised from the de dead also. So it's like the ultimate spiritual win-win scenario, you know? He loved the Father by loving and raising Lazarus from the dead, and it glorifies the Father at the same time, and res he resurrected someone he loves. Nothing special about Lazarus that we can see. He doesn't even say a word, doesn't even speak a word, doesn't say anything, and, but yet he's recorded in the eternal book for all of history. 
since he did this for Lazarus and God so loved the world, which we studied earlier, meant all Jew and Gentile alike, all sinners, he certainly can and will save you and me from sin and death, you and me whom he loves. He must, because look at the end of verse, look at verse 50 again. Father commands everlasting life. For it is God's will that none should perish, and that must be us as believers, our will too. Is that your will too? Each of us has to look into the mirror on that last question. You know, I was convicted this week when uh, I was reading through various commentators and teachings on this passage, and uh, I'll end with this. Uh, John Corson really broke this down in, in, a, in a pretty cool way, for me at least, and again, looking in the mirror here. Uh, he broke it down into serving, worshiping, and witnessing. So Martha served. She served differently. She was diff something different about her. Mary worshiped perfectly, and Lazarus witnessed without saying a word. He was the proof of what Jesus did. It's not, and this, was, this really stuck with me because I'm a verbose person, right? I fill up space with words. And he said, it's not important what we say, but who you are. <laughs> I just thought, wow, that really speaks a lot. It says, you were dead, your countenance was drab, you reeked of the grave, and you were wrapped up in all kinds of stuff, and he brought you back to life, and people will wonder who you are. Um, he really hammered this home about witnessing, and it's, he quoted Samuel Chadwick, who was from like the late 1890s, early 1900s, and he said this, If God is at work week by week raising men from the dead, there will always be people coming to see how it is done. You cannot find an empty church that has conversion for its leading feature. You want to know how to fill empty chapels? Here's the answer. Get your Lazarus. <laughs> wow, that's powerful. People will always wonder about a place that has a Lazarus or two or three. People that were saved from their sin changed a spring in their step, right? A sparkle in their eye. You know, last week uh, it was cool, um, you know, when we were talking about that, maybe it was two weeks ago, talking about the, the airway folks, and I know a number of people surrendered their life to Christ. And uh, little Skylar uh, came up to me and told me, you know, about doing that. And uh, there was something different about her, right? Just that smile. You could, you could tell. And I was like, wow, that's so awesome. I said, well, you know what you got to do? You got you to, you know, get into the Word and study in the Word. I said, you got to tell people about it, right? And John, remember, John Kennedy was walking past me. I said, hey, I said, here, John. I said, she's got something to tell you. And so she told John. And John was like, it was awesome. And John so rightly said, he goes, boy, Skylar, one thing's true, Andy and, and John are going to disappoint you, but Jesus will never disappoint you, man. Cling on to his leg and like, don't let go. It was so awesome. But there was something different about her. And so they were just staring at Lazarus, right? And I can only imagine they were probably like playing with his hair, poking him like, is he real? Is he alive? Whatever, you know. And Chad, this is John Corson speaking, Chadwick was right. Conversion as a leading feature is a packed church. And Corson experienced that Sunday after Sunday. People were getting baptized. People want to come and see what is happening, what is going on. If you and me are a believer and we're dragging and we're down, he says, be a witness. The person that is not evangelizing is fossilizing, as he said. And man, that was just, that, that was like the two before in the head there, you know. If the person that is not evangelizing is fossilizing, if you just take in more Bible studies but do not share the living Lord with unbelievers, you will become lethargic, lukewarm, well, dead. But, but if you get evangelizing, man, will you be energized and brought back to life. And so just like where Lazarus was brought back to glorify the Father, but yet at the same time, it raised his buddy from new life. And just like that, if we're evangelizing, we're glorifying the Father. 
And man, he's filling our hearts up, you know, at the same time, the spiritual win-win. When one of the lost sheep is found, heaven breaks out in a loud shout of joy, but your and my heart will also explode. He goes on to challenge us believers. If we come in week after week, month after month, year after year, just showing up with diminishing Christian joy, not sharing, not bringing an unbeliever to church with you or me, and this is convicting to me, man, when you do that, like when you bring an unbeliever and you start to change that, your heart is enlarged by being a witness. Share your testimony, share your story. The, you know, People will be curious. It not only fills empty churches, but it fills empty Christians. So when was the last time that you or I personally shared with an unbeliever the reason for our joy, our, my joy, your joy, what the Lord did, saving us from our sins and the eternal separation of God, reconciling us back to the Father and wondering, not wondering any longer what will happen when I die or where will I go? Saved, resurrected, like Lazarus. So for whoever does not believe, if there's anyone here today if you're in that situation, are you ready to believe, ready to give your heart to Jesus, to believe in his name? If there's anyone here that we can pray with about that, man, please come up and see us. And as believers, let us all intentionally witness this week. Let's challenge ourselves to go beyond, I know I have to, and recall what he did for us and then witness for the love of Christ compels us first and foremost for his glory, for God's command is eternal life then for our hearts. Reignite the passion that our adversary has tried and been successful at beating down. For we know that God's will is that none should perish, and that should be our will too. All right, amen. Well, um, I know we went to, I don't know, Rob, if you're coming up or not, I guess.